Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. Nick here. Welcome to the show for this week. What is my favorite topic? My favorite topic is obviously scaling businesses, which is the name of the show, clearly. But my favorite, favorite topic is how can you build a business so extraordinary, so valuable that it creates a life-changing event, what we call a capital event for you, the business owner, the founder. Now, I've been involved in 117 acquisitions. I've talked about that probably enough. I've been involved in now 25 business exits. It was 24 as of about two weeks ago, and I'm delighted to say there's been another one. I've helped someone take their business all the way to exit, and it is one of the most fulfilling things that I do, and it's certainly one of the main reasons why I love presenting this podcast to you, because I'm going to try and help you do the same one day, if that is your aspiration. But today we have one of the masters on, one of my compadres, so to speak, and that is John Warlow. Now, John Warlow is the founder of the Value Builder System, which is a, a basically it's a software for building the value of your company using um, heaps of different examples from thousands of businesses worldwide. He is also the author of a great book. One of my favorite books is called Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. And that's been recognized by both Fortune and Inc. magazines as one of the best business business books of the last decade. So we're going to go backwards and forwards today. I'm going to talk about how do you create a valuable business? What are the, the key components? What does John think about that? Again, we're going to riff backwards and forwards from my experience in private equity, and we're going to agree on most things. And there's a couple of things where we might even go a little bit deeper and really just blow your mind. But listen, if you have the aspiration to sell your business one day, if you are building a business that you want to sell for the maximum value, then this is going to be the episode for you. So without further ado, welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Mr. John Warrillow. Hi, everyone. It's Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business. We are going to have a rock and roll show today because we are talking about probably my favorite subject. We're talking about what it takes to build a valuable business for exit. So how can you maximize the value of your business to get effectively what can be a life-changing event for many entrepreneurs and business leaders? And I have with me as our guest today, Mr. John Warlow who's probably, I guess I probably is, the world-renowned expert in this space. So, John, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be with you, Nick. So, let's get into this. So, you know what? I was, I was going through your bio, and you've been in this, in this world for a while. <laughs> so, get, don't get me wrong, but you, you literally, the, the book Built to Sell is a decade old now. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, you're making me feel old, man. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I told you I'm a nice guy. I told you you're going to have a fun, a fun conversation with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It goes back. I mean, if we, if we go back even further than that, I, I got into this, uh, you know, by building a few companies, one of which was a, a quantitative market research company. And we had big clients, British Telecom in the UK was a client, but most of them were in the U S mostly, you know, big banks, phone companies, stuff like that. And we had big, like we, we were, we had good profit margins, 23% profit margins, five or 6 million in revenue. And I went to see this guy named Perry Mielli, who is an M&A guy in Toronto. And I said, you know, I was kind of rubbing my hands together thinking like, what do you think it's worth? Right. And he said, well, kind of depends on the answer to a couple of questions. Who does the research? And I'm like, I'm involved. And he's like, okay, who does the selling? I'm like, we work with these huge, massive companies. Of course, I've got a turn up for the sales meeting. It's like, all right, well, <laughs> yeah. you, you don't have a business here. You got a job. You, you effectively have a worthless company. And I tell you, that was a really tough thing for me to hear. And it kicked off a journey where I tried to understand if it wasn't a client list or profitability, like what, what is it that actually drives value? And uh, long story short, that company was acquired by a public company years later and it had a happy ending. But that meeting in that office with Perry uh, sort of really was a cold shower. And, and 
I guess it, it helped me understand. Him? I mean, I, I mean, to get into this, I mean, I, I totally yeah. get what, what you've built, but I mean, you know, and, and there's a point where a business becomes, you know, certainly more than a job for someone. But mm-hmm. you must have had some value there. I mean, what was the what was the approximate size of the business? You know, when you had that yeah, conversation? we were five or six million in revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, twenty to thirty percent profit margins. So, like, you know, I thought, okay, this is a real business. Like, it, it could sell. And he told me, like, you could sell it, but it's going to be an earnout, and and that's going to be crushing. I I just did, did an interview actually with a British lady named Jody Cook. I don't know if you've ever had Jody on the show. No, I don't know Jody. So so Jody built a great business marketing services company and uh she focused a lot on building processes, SOPs in the company because she wanted to sell it without an earnout. And I said, "Yeah, but it's a marketing services business like that's basically impossible, isn't it? And she says, no, not if you document your processes well enough and you get yourself out of the business, et cetera. And, and, and long story short, she was able to sell the business. And I said, but most people would never invest that kind of time in creating SOPs. It sounds boring and horrible. And she said, yeah, do you want to live in prison for three months or three years? And I'm like, what do you nice. mean by that? She's like, oh yeah, SOPs suck, but it's three months of your time. An earnout is three years of your life. <laughs> I'd rather do three months than three I years. So I get it. Great- There's so many, you know, what's, what's, what's cool about this conversation already, like two or three minutes in is we could go in so many different angles and different tangents. Yeah, for sure. Because like there's some things you've said already, which I'm thinking back to my PE days. I'm thinking, now what, what was the situation there? That they, they would they have accepted you know, anyone who wouldn't have accepted an earnout? The only time that would possibly happen is if it was a bolt on or a roll up to something else. Where <laughs> so this was what's going through my head, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but let's 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 get into it. So I, I mentioned the ten years for a reason. What has fundamentally changed in the last decade from when you first wrote that book? Recurring revenue has become even more important, I think. When I wrote Built to Sell, I gave very short shrift to recurring revenue. I kind of mentioned it a couple of times, but really didn't focus enough on it. But if anything's really changed in the last 10 years, we've gone from a, a world where you used to download songs you know, for 99 cents to Spotify, right? And, and we're, you know, in the United States, they have car washes now that you can you can go through and, and basically have on subscription. You can get your car washed as many times as you want in a month. We've moved away from the transaction business model to the recurring business model. And I think it's reflected in valuations. PE companies, uh, you know, strategic advisors, strategic investors, excuse me, are, are paying a truckload more for companies with recurring revenue because it can demonstrate, obviously, the longevity of the, the revenue stream. So I think that's probably changed. I mean, recurring revenue models existed 10 years ago, but I think it's just become so much more important and pronounced and, and frankly, mm-hmm. uh, acceptable. That's, we're, we're part of the subscription economy now. Yeah, I agree with that fully. I mean, the way we used to be looked at um, probably a decade ago when I was in, it was more about longer term contracts. Mm-hmm. So you look at it in terms of quality of revenues based on the fact that there was predictability because it was a three-year contract or a five-year contract or whatever it is. And these days, those things don't seem to exist as much, certainly in my experience, but has been replaced a little bit by this more, it, it's a longer term transactional play. But I agree with you fully because some of the businesses we invested in when I left private equity about four years ago, we were looking at recurring revenue models as the basis of valuation, as opposed to just the EBITDA or the, or the profit performance. Absolutely. I mean, there's lots of examples of, of where recurring revenue model companies are trading for multiples of top line revenue and the EBITDA is sort of an afterthought. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's critical. If you're in a business to business space, if you're HubSpot or some sort of CRM platform, you can often get a contract on subscription in a business to business case. In most business to consumer recurring revenue models, they're not contractual. They're just, you know, you cancel, you can cancel anytime sort of thing, but both can be valuable for different reasons. And I think in the eyes of an acquirer, as, as you point out. And what about what about um, valuations over the last decade as well? So you know, because there are some yeah. there are some crazy numbers we're seeing thrown around now, and and you look at the businesses and you see land grab, you see lots of money certainly in the investment markets. Do you think a lot of businesses are overstated now? Yeah, we're in a position right now where I think it's pretty frothy, right? So we've got a ton of private equity companies. Generally, I think is is forcing up the the, the market in many spaces, uh, chasing a few deals, and they're being fueled by debt, right? So low debt, low uh, interest rates are at historical lows, right? And as long as that's the case, as you know better than anybody, you can ratchet up 
return on investment. And therefore, I think we're going to see this, this you know, valuation pressure upwards as long as interest rates remain really low. Now, there's, there's a, f- a few different things jurisdiction-wise. So in the United States right now, there is a capital gains tax change about to take place. And that's going to have a huge impact on the after-tax proceeds of the sale of a company. And if that goes through as they expect it will, you're going to see a huge proportion of business owners wanting to sell their business before the tax goes through. And so you might have a flood of businesses on the market, which might depress valuations a little bit. But I think it's more a, 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 a case of interest rates being as low as they are. We had that change happen here in the UK. I think it was might have been three years ago now. The vortex of COVID means that you lose track of time, right? Um, <laughs> I think it's like but, pre-COVID, uh, after COVID. Yeah, yeah I totally. can't remember. I don't know what's happened, but uh, you know, it used to be a thing called entrepreneurs relief here, where you know you had a, a ten million pound limit on you know basically capital gains mm-hmm. at a ten percent threshold, and then it went up to twenty percent, I believe. I can't remember the exact figure, but it's funny because I I buy businesses as well. I buy businesses that are smaller, between one to ten million dollars. And I've seen already, partly because of post-COVID, partly because people are worried about what is going to happen with interest rates and you know, obviously the legislation changes. I've seen a lot of good, profitable small businesses on the market, more on the market now than I've seen probably in the last decade myself of you know, looking around for these businesses for the PE firms. Yeah, we, we just talked about Jody Cook. I think what we're seeing is a lot of businesses like Jody. So Jody struggled through the pandemic. Like it, she, her business was growing really well. March, 2020 happens. It, it all goes sideways. Uh, she gets really deeply involved. She's selling to customers. She stabilizes the business by Christmas of 2020. She's like, I'm out. I I can't do this again. Like it's just, I, you know, they had the GFC and now this, yeah, and yeah. it's just, it, I think it's caused for a lot of business owners to say, I'm out. I, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating time. It really is. I, I as I said, I, I do a lot of advising for businesses that are looking to scale through acquisitions, and mm-hmm. obviously people who are trying to enter what we call the world of acquisition entrepreneurship. And even the way the deals are getting done right now are interesting. You know, in terms of the way that you know finance is being leveraged to get deals done. But um, what I'd like to get into is is a little bit sort of how you've created a system around value creation. Let's call it that. I mean, obviously your, your model is called the value builder system. Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about how you created that and, and how it works. Cause I think a lot of people here who listen to scale up your business, they have businesses, they're looking for an exit at some point. I think they'd love to hear how you speak about this. Yeah. So value builder basically is, is driven by eight unique metrics that we've proven to be important to acquirers, some of which we've already talked about today. So hub and spoke, the dependence the company has on the owner. Uh, Recurring revenue is another one of the major ones. And we've seen that by tweaking these eight drivers, we can almost double the value of a company. So when people start with us, they do this intake questionnaire called the value builder questionnaire. Typical business when they start with this is trading at about three and a half times profit. Mm-hmm. Those yep. that achieve a score of 90 or greater are trading at 7.1 times pre-tax profit. So it's a, it's a process we take owners through to help them really understand, hey, what's driving the value of your company? Again, I go back to the story that I personally shared at the beginning. I had no idea what drove the value of my company. Again, I thought it was simply profit, revenue, client list, right? And yet there were so many other nuances. And I think right now, you know, there's this prevailing sort of ethos or narrative in among SMEs and business owners that top line revenue growth is the holy grail, right? Oh, you got to grow, you got to go, grow, to grow. And I think top line revenue growth can certainly help uh, scaling as, as the name of your podcast intimates. It, it, it certainly can help, but I think we almost overemphasize top line revenue at the expense of some of the less obvious, but I think could be much more um, uh, impactful valuation metrics that, uh, that are out there. What's the drivers, isn't it? As you were saying beforehand. So, you know, revenue might be the outcome or profit, depending on what you're looking at, but it's how do you get it? And, and so what I, what I heard from you at the very beginning of our conversation was that, you know, your potential processes weren't necessarily structured in a way. I mean, if you, if you, if again, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but if, if you were the bottleneck yeah. Right? Yeah. and someone is going to buy the business and then, you know, you don't want to hang around for a period of time or more importantly, you know, they want to scale it. They need to have at least good foundations. Is, is it, so I suppose my question here is of the eight different characteristics in the value builder, what are the ones that seem to come up the most mm. that, you know, you can tweak tune, whatever that is to get the best result or the, or the most um, deliberate result. Yeah, what we have really talked about yet is what we call monopoly control. 
And monopoly control gets its name from Warren Buffett, the famous investor who looks to buy businesses with a deep and wide competitive moat, right? So effectively, what I try to tell entrepreneurs is that when, an, when somebody looks at buying your company, they're going to close the boardroom door. They're not going to invite you in and they're going to have a conversation between themselves. And the conversation is going to say, should we buy this company or should we just compete with them? Have they built something that is so unique that it's just cheaper and faster for us to buy them than it would be to basically compete with them. And that conversation happens all the time behind closed doors. And I think the way they get to, you know what, let's just buy them is if you've carved out something really unique that would take years or in many, many millions of dollars or pounds to actually replicate. I'm reminded of um, a story, a woman I interviewed on Built Cell Radio named Stephanie Breedlove. She built a, a little payroll company. They had a special niche where they paid uh, au pairs, like nannies, parents who had a nanny or an au pair, a yeah. babysitter, they would basically help them do the payroll for those individuals. And she started this business and she reached a point at $300,000 in revenue. So it's like her and one person where she's trying to figure out how to grow the business. right? And it was just getting harder to acquire new customers, new parents. And she said, well, what else do you know, parents need that I could fulfill. Well, like busy parents need, you know, like they need meal delivery service. They need lawn care. They need all these and things. They need help sleeping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Diaper, yeah, you know, like all that. these. And she's like, but that's, that's not really what I got into business to do. I got into business to help parents with this payroll. And at the time, the prevailing wisdom was it's eight times cheaper to cross sell your existing customers a new product than it is to go find a new customer, right? So everybody, every book, everyone on stage was telling her cross sell, cross sell, cross sell, right? But what she realized that every time she cross sold a new service, she'd be diluting her unique value proposition, her differentiation, right? And so she took the harder road to her credit. Wow. She said, I'm going to just do payroll for nannies. It was much slower. She built the company up to $9 million in revenue over 25 years. So this is not like a juggernaut. This is steady Eddie. And when she goes to sell it, she looks around and says, okay, well, who would have strategic reasons to buy this business? She arrives at care.com, which is like a, a, a website where you can plug in your postal code and it'll give you five-star rated nannies in your local area. Okay, well, care.com has got 7 million subscribers that all need a payroll service. And she makes the case, this is like 1% of your customers or my, your subscribers buy my service. That's a business seven times our size. Anyway, long story short, she sold her $9 million business for $54 million, six times top line revenue. And again, it would never have, it never have been possible had she diluted herself by cross-selling, had she sort of focused on you know, the holy grail of top line revenue growth is the most important thing for me. Instead, she said, you know what, I'm going to really double down on what makes us unique, our differentiation. So we call that monopoly control. And I think it's one of the most important things entrepreneurs need to remember is that nobody's going to buy you if it would be just easy to compete with you because you're selling a commodity or you know, you're selling on price or responding to RFPs. Like, There's no point in buying you. Unless you've got... I mean, I love that example because we haven't covered that on the show before. But my, my sort of counter is unless you've got scale, right? So I mean, sure. like the last... The last business I yeah. was involved in was um, a 14 acquisition roll-up in the education space. And we sold mm -hmm. that business to Blackstone. We are talking big numbers now. We're talking that the actual exit price was over 2 billion. But you're right. There was, there was pushback even through that process. I was involved in the exit process whereby, you know, is this just a mixed match of stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we make this work? Is it just 14 companies brought together to create something? But in the end, it did make some sense. But I suppose in that example, she could have gone big, but there must be sort of a middle ground in the middle. If you don't, if you don't commit to, the, to one strategy, yeah, you're stuck I, in no man's I think it comes down to how you're financing the business. Like if, if you are self-financing, bootstrapping, you've got finite resources, like everybody has oh, finite yeah. resources, but like underlying finite resources, right? And what most entrepreneurs do is they kind of chase top line revenue. They're, they're at 500,000 pounds in turnover and they're like, I want to be at a million or I want to be at 2 million. I'm like, we're talking about relatively small companies. And to do that, the easiest, fastest way to get there is to cross sell your existing customers. And you end up being a mile wide and an inch deep. You end up with three customers who love you, but nothing that could live without you personally 
catering to those existing clients. And so again, you want to, you know, there's a, there's a construct here. Most small businesses, SMEs, sub 10 million in revenue, they sell lots of things to a few people. And I think the most valuable SMEs do exactly the opposite. They sell a few things to lots of people. And that sounds like I've just, it's like a turn of a phrase. I've said the same thing in a different way. It's actually the exact opposite. Right. So if you sell a few things to lots of people, I think you're building a valuable company. Yeah, no, I get that. And I've seen businesses where they might have, you know, 50, 60, 70% of their revenue to two or three customers, and then they've got the tail. <laughs> but the shift in that, in fact, we're evaluating one right now, a security business, which has got exactly that dynamic. Mm. Uh, and in fact, they lost uh, a key customer, big, big, well-known brand name customer pre-COVID. And that took something like um, a third of their revenue down in that one yeah. deal. So yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally get where you're coming from. Let's let's go a little bit deeper if we can, just sure. into your system. I'd like I'd like everyone listening if they haven't obviously picked up your book or looked at looked at what you do. You know, obviously we'll make sure they have that um, access to that in the show notes. But let's go through the eight things if that's okay. We don't yeah, have to deep sure. into them. I just want to kind of give the high level, and then I can sort of jump into a couple. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, again, we talked a lot about them. So financial performance is key. Obviously, it's one of the eight. So top line revenue, profitability, important. Growth potential is also important. Growth potential is really trying to make the case of what you business could be in the future as opposed to what it is or has been in the past. So you got to remember, as you again know, you bought businesses and many of them the acquirer is towing the start line, right? Of, of their journey. You're looking to exit, they're looking to grow. And so you've got to make the case that while you've hit 5 million in turnover or whatever you are, it has the potential to get to 50. So growth potential is another one. Switzerland structure is a third. You know, Switzerland structure gets its name from the country of Switzerland. It's obsessed with independence. So we talk about this notion of, of, of making sure your company is not dependent on a single customer, your example from the security space, employee or supplier. Right, when you, good. When you've got independence in that in that way, uh, you can build a more valuable company. And, and and this one I think is really quite important right now, because a lot of companies are becoming too dependent on a supplier, and it's happening because there are these giant platforms. I'm thinking of of the iTunes Store, the Apple Store. Uh, I'm thinking of Shopify's ecosystem, Salesforce.com. There's all these platform companies like Apple, like Salesforce, where their small businesses sort of attaching themselves to them and they're going by the kind of rising tide lifts all boats. While that's a great strategy for growing your top line revenue, if you become too dependent on any one of these sort of ecosystems, it can actually discount your valuation. I, I did an interview with Ben Leonard, Ben built Beast Gear. He's up in Scotland, but you may have seen him. He's, he's pretty, he's got a credit quite a good following in the UK. Anyways, Beast Gear has those like straps and like workout sort of accessories. I reckon I've ropes. got some in my gym bag. Because as you were saying, I'd imagine. Thinking, I reckon I've got some of those in the gym yeah. this morning. Yeah, okay, I know what it is. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So it's a cool business. Check it out. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. fantastic. And, and you know, we started it with nothing. He bored 600 pounds from his dad. They bought in some shipping, skipping ropes from China. And like, it was a very humble beginning. What's cool about the story is he he built this business largely on Amazon. So by the time he sold it, 90% of his revenue was coming from Amazon. And, and you think, oh, well, Amazon's growing like stink. That's incredible. They're taking over the world. It's just like you're just basically attaching yourself to Amazon and, and therefore your, your revenue is growing as a, as a byproduct. The challenge though, what Ben found was when he went to sell the company is that discounted his valuation. The fact that he was susceptible to the vagaries of Amazon's algorithm, the fact that they could delist him for any reason that they chose oh, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and therefore... It, it, it actually discounted. I think he got three times profit for the company, uh, which he was very happy with and was a successful exit again because he bootstrapped it and he didn't take outside money. But had he been able to build a brand off Amazon, it probably would have gone for a considerable amount. You see that a lot in the e-commerce space where you know, yes. a lot of those businesses, they get to a certain threshold, they get hoovered up you know, by people at quite pretty low valuations. You know, I've had a look at that space, not where I play particularly, but I can see why. I mean, we had an investment in an Amazon business, a small one. And, you know, there were a couple of things that changed in terms of the, uh, the Amazon model, the um, FPA or whatever it's called. And that changed our, we, we lost revenue from that straight away just by one decision. And so yeah. I can totally see it doesn't, you know, again, if, you, if you're thinking about how do, I, how do I drive value, drive growth, mitigate risk, all of these different things that it cr create uncertainty are going to obviously then bring the valuations down. 
I'll give you another story. And this is, is, is from a guy named Andrew Gizdecki. So I interviewed Andrew on Built to Sell Radio where he built a company that did mobile apps for small businesses, right? He's in the space where small businesses, restaurants, plumbers, it would cost them in the early days, like 50, 60 grand to build a mobile app. Well, no, like no restaurant or gym has 50, 60 grand to spend on a mobile app. So he's like, what if we created like a template, a simple template for a website that you could put on a mobile device that basically allowed these small businesses to have a mobile app, which was as the iPhone became more dominant, it was a huge deal. So he builds that company and it grows like stink. It gets to, I think it's 7 million in turnover when he gets an acquisition offer of $15 million for 70% of the company. Okay. He's like 26 years old at the time. Like it's a, it's life-changing money. And, and he says, yeah, but you know, I think I can, I think I can keep growing. So he turns down the offer. Well, two weeks later, Tim Cook and his friends at Apple made a decision and they said, we're not going to accept template based apps in the app store anymore. Overnight, his company went from like hero to zero, literally overnight, like all of the apps were removed. He couldn't upload a single app. He's getting calls left, right, and center from everyone saying, where are my apps? Anyways, long story short, um, in a desperate attempt, there was a, a television program uh, where a woman was describing how the app, one of the apps on Andrew's platform had helped her through a period of deep mental depression that she had uh, was suffering from. And Andrew took a clip from that video and cold emailed Tim Cook. He's like, T Cook, T dot Cook, T Tim dot Cook. Like, tried okay, them all. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling this story already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he said, and he said, like, is this really the kind of app you want to delist from your app store? This app that has saved this woman's life. And to his credit, Tim Cook emailed him back, said, all right, let's talk. And, uh, a couple of weeks later, they were able to find a solution which enabled Andrew to get his apps back in the app store. And as you might imagine, a few years later, he sold the company, realizing that the stress of running it was was over the over the top. But it, it was a good story because it remind even the most successful businesses on the outside and ones that are growing like crazy. If you've got something like a supplier dependency problem, like a Switzerland structure problem. Uh, it can be a major flag for an acquirer. Yeah, okay. Well, I want to continue on this thread, but I've got a quick question to throw in here because it's the right yeah, time yeah. for it. So in your opinion, when is the best time to sell a business? Such a great question. I think it's when you reach the freedom point. That's at mm -hmm. least a, a, an inflection point where you, I think you should think about it. The freedom point in our vernacular is when... You, the sale of your company, the after-tax proceeds of the sale of your company, along with whatever investments you've built outside of your company, would effectively create a nest egg large enough for you to live free, independent for the rest of your life. Now, there's lots of reasons to build a business, lots of reasons to scale a business. There's personal satisfaction of that, building a team, changing the world, all that. Great. Love it. But at the same time, when I talk to most entrepreneurs, I think the desire for personal freedom, independence, financial FU money, so to speak, yep. is an underlying vein that can't be denied. And I think when you reach that point where you've effectively achieved what you wanted to achieve, which is financial independence, it's at least an inflection point where you should think about it and, and pull up and say, do I want to trade financial independence effectively for the next tranche of growth? Like is Decky got to the point where he would have been 26 years old with $15 million in the bank. Like he decided not to take that trade and wanted to grow to the next level, but then ended up regretting that deeply. And I think when you reach it, it's just willing, it's worth pulling up and saying, you know, Warren Buffett, again, I feel like I'm in the Warren Buffett fan club today. He said, <laughs> I think he said something to the effect, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it, but I'll paraphrase it. He said, you know, it's insane to trade something you do not want for something you deeply value. And if you deeply value independence, personal freedom, and you've achieved it if you sold your company, it's crazy to trade that for something that you don't want, another 10 employees, another location, and another million dollars in revenue. Again, if that's not something that, is, that, that gets you excited, don't trade it. So I think when you reach the freedom point is the right time to pull up and say, yeah. eh, Maybe. Great. It's a great answer. And it's, it comes up all the time. In fact, the reason I want to ask 
that at that point is it's probably one of the key questions that comes up all the time on this show. And I mean, I've got a couple of stories. I won't go through them now, but I'm in the process of, we're actually three weeks away from selling a company. And there's a, there's a big horror story behind this in terms of someone got sick, someone, you know, all sorts of things happening. But even at the point where we're this close and let's hope it still goes ahead, right? I always, you never count your chickens, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the person who, who's had this company for 16 years is still going, oh, perhaps I should just hold on a bit, mm. hold on a bit. Now, he's had a, a life-changing uh, illness recently, and he's still saying that. <laughs> and I'm like, man, let, let's just let's look at the numbers, right? It's, it's a reasonable payday for this guy. It may not be what he expected at the very beginning of the journey, but it's enough, to your point, to create a level of freedom and independence. And so he's finally got his head around it, but it's such an emotional decision. you know. It is. It is. You should have them do something called the pre-score. So pre-score is a cool little tool we built, prescore.com if you're interested. Yeah, cool. What we learned was that the reason owners end up regretting their decision to sell comes down to these four factors. One of them is they're all push and no pull. Push factors, the things that are pushing you out of your business are like a health scare, a health event. Uh, could be regulation, a pandemic, uh, employees that are frustrating you. These are all push factors, things that you're frustrated by your, your company and are pushing you out of your business. And if you're all push, it, it will basically lead to regret. What we found is that you also need to at least offset your push factors with as many pull factors. So pull factors are things you're excited to go do next, right? Could be get fit, travel, write a book, start a business, build a charity, whatever. Something that's turning you on. And if you can have at least as many pull factors than push, you won't regret the decision to sell. I'm reminded of a guy I interviewed, uh, man, maybe a couple of years ago, this guy named Sean Oshman, built a little IT services business, a couple million dollars in revenue, 39 years old. And he's like, you know what? He lived in Denver, Colorado, which is like this landlocked middle of America. And he's like, you know what? I want to actually live on a sailboat. I'm sick of living in a you know, landlocked Denver. I want to live on a sailboat. So he's 39. So he said, by the time I'm 40, I'm going to live on a sailboat. And so we put his business on the market, got, I think, 2.6, 2.5, 2.6 times SDE, or this is an expression of profit. So discretionary earnings, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I interviewed him on the show, and I'm like, so Sean, like two and a half times is, you know, like it's not, I mean, it's, it's a solid single to use a baseball analogy, but it's not like hitting it out of the park. It's, 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 an, yeah, okay, you know, it's an okay outcome. And he's like, um, yeah, but you don't understand. I, I live on a sailboat. <laughs> and for me, it was just a good reminder that, you know, if you've got lots of pull factors, um, valuation becomes important, but not critical. It's not like you have to squeeze out every last dime. Um, you know, the, the, oftentimes the big reason owners regret is they sit back they're you know, the rocking chair with a glass of lemonade a year after selling and think, did I get taken advantage of, right? Did I, did I leave money on the table, right? Because if we're all push we end up having these sort of regrets. So anyways, your, your, your buddy who no, had the health event, I'd love for him to- No, I'm glad, I'm glad we covered that because I don't think we've gone into it in, a, in, in how you've explained it and expressed it before. And, and yeah. it's funny, I have these conversations literally daily with people. <laughs> and yeah. there's some big numbers at stake. But I always go back and say, listen, be clear on what your number is. Just be clear on your number. And usually it's in a, it's in a range. I could almost, you know, put money behind the range. It normally is, right? right. And, um, and then when you break that back, and you sort of look at it and go, listen, you don't ever have to work again, right? If you're smart with what you're going to do, you know, go and buy your Lamborghini if you want that. Yeah. But, you know, you don't have to work again, right? Look at, the, look at what this is going to provide. And when people suddenly get their head around that and they realize they actually have got, as you said, that financial independence, then I think, yeah, I love the way of the pull and the push. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Okay. So let's just finish off a little bit more. So we've covered some really interesting things here. Um, what's, what's one last area in this kind of creating value space that we've just been speaking about for the last 20 minutes. What's one last one that we haven't mentioned? We talked about the Switzerland piece, uh, obviously revenues, profit, anything else that we've missed? I mean, we've, we've covered some of the biggies, you know, valuation teeter totter in, in, uh, in the case of uh, the UK listeners, valuation seesaw is, uh, is one that I think is also important to remember. So effectively when, and again, I'm speaking to the acquirer and even talking to you about this, but maybe your listeners would find it helpful. When an acquirer buys a business, they've got to write two checks, right? So they're writing a check to you to hopefully mm -hmm. fund your Lamborghini or whatever you want to go do with it. The second check though, is to fund your working capital. So the money your business needs to operate to meet its immediate kind of obligations. 
And the thing to remember is that the acquirer writes those two checks from the same account. And the more they have to invest in working capital to run your company, the less they're willing to write you a check. The opposite is also true. If your company is like a cash machine, just generating cash as it runs, as it grows, they don't have to inject working capital. And therefore, in many cases, they're able to write you a bigger check. Mm, yeah. So I think that's important to remember that you know, there's a difference between cash flow and profitability. And again, most people listening to this will know that profitability is like a is like an accountant's expression of your EBITDA, right? But it's different than money in the bank. And I think having a positive cash flow cycle, charging up front is to the large to the extent that you can. If you have a recurring revenue model, getting as much of that up front. You know, there's a lot of you, you you've seen this when you buy a SaaS product. It'll be like it's ninety nine dollars a month paid annually or $129 a month if you want to pay it, pay it. You know, and you say, well, why would they give up 30 points of margin uh, just to get the money up front? Well, they do that for lots of reasons, but it gives them growth capital. It gives them a positive cash flow cycle. And uh, I think it's a really important piece to the overall value of your company that oftentimes just gets misunderstood or, or just overlooked. Yeah, no, really good. I love that as well. And in your experience of, you know, when when a purchase price is agreed, just want to kind of get your view on this. So you've got the, this is the price we're going to pay for the business. Where yep. does the working capital piece come into that? That's an additional piece usually? Yeah, it's usually described, you know, I would, I would encourage any entrepreneur looking at a letter of intent, which is the sort mm -hmm. of precursor to a definitive share purchase agreement to make sure that the, the working capital calculation is described in that. So don't leave it to due diligence to figure out how we're going to deal with the cash. Talk about it in the LOI because for most entrepreneurs, you know, they don't want to pay money to the government, so they kind of create a little bit of a rainy day fund. They kind of keep a bunch of cash in their business, and they rightly say, "Look, that that money's mine. Like I made that money years ago. It's just there growing, right?" And a lot of acquirers will say, "Hold on a second, that that money is your working capital. It's in the company. So like we need to make sure that yeah, that." There's always a massive debate about this, like you know, yeah. in terms of you know, so how many months working cap do we need? And yeah, then, exactly. And then what? What then? you know, uh, stipulates cash-free, debt-free. <laughs> exactly. So there's, again, it's kind of a boring behind the scenes element of the sale of a company, but it's important. And I think, you know, we all want to look at the, you know, gravitate towards the top line number. What, you know, what do they want? What, what are they offering to buy my business? But the working capital calculation, I think is the second most important number on LO and any LOI. And again, savvy entrepreneurs, savvy acquirers will oftentimes gloss over and say, ah, we'll deal with that later. And again, you want to get that stuff articulated. Because as soon as you sign the LOI, of course, the, the balance of power in the negotiation swings heavily in favor of the acquirer, right? Up until that time, you've got lots of leverage, right? And you can make sure some of these things are pinned down. But then as soon as the LOI is signed, that's when you lose leverage and no, your ability to negotiate a, these things. Are that's a fantastic point as well. I think people need to understand how that works. And and yeah, you're right. Because there's a point where I've seen people trying to put things into the deal right towards the close, right? You know, people say, well, we've already agreed this. Yeah. And deals fall down. That's why I was saying beforehand about this, this transaction I'm involved in the moment. You know, someone asked me today, actually, one of the um, shareholders, oh, what do you think the chances are? And I said, oh, 60%. You know, we're over the, we're over the hump. But, that's the, but hold on, everything's, you know, everyone's saying the right things. I said, yeah, but still 60%. And do you know what? It'll be 60% the day before we're supposed to sign. Yeah. 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 No, I think you know, like you were describing retrading and retrading happens be again, you agree to an LOI, let's say, okay, we're going to pay you 10 million pounds for your business. Fantastic. Uh, that's agreed to in the LOI. And then as time goes on through the due diligence period, the check hasn't cleared your bank account yet. They haven't even sent the check yet. You're just going through due diligence. And that's when a savvy acquirer is looking for problems, things you misrepresented, et cetera. And that's when retrading happens, a lowering of the price at the very last minute. And again, retrading happens, I think, legitimately when you have misrepresented something in your company or you have not hit your you know your targets that you said you were going to hit as part of the that's legitimate retrading and it, you're going to get a haircut illegitimate retrading is when the acquirer uses the knowledge that you have effectively sold your company in your mind you bought the lake house you you know got the ski chalet and you've told your spouse your employees etc and they use that effective knowledge to retrade because they know you have very little like to stand on. And I think that's illegitimate retrading. And that's the dirty little secret of the, of the M and a world that it happens. And um, yeah, I, I did, dare I say it, but I saw it happen a lot in the private equity world, you know? Yeah. And, and the thing that was really, this is the thing I thought was a little bit naive and, you know, part of the, part of the reason I don't play there in the same way actually is um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the businesses and the transactions that we did, we did expect an earnout period, right? We expected sure. the person selling the business and all their, their team to, 
come along for the ride for the next two or three years. You know, that's the PE model. And, you know, if there was that, you know, that push or that kind of, you know, well, actually we're not going to pay you as much, that, that bad taste in the mouth, you know, when someone now has to stick around for the next few years. It's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the impact on the value, right. You know, someone's not coming in motivated to drive value, right. They're like, hold on, you screwed me over here. Or, you know, so that sometimes I think those things, really important things uh, are not really well thought through on behalf of the acquirers. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely right. I'm reminded of uh, there's a guy named Barry Hinckley I interviewed on Built Already. I think it was year one or two. He built a a company and got retraded on at the very last minute. He said, "Never again. I'm, I'm never going to get retraded on." So he came up with something called the no retrading handshake. And I'm like, oh, "All right, I'll no. bite." What, what what is the no retrading handshake? So he's like, "All right." So you go through the entire you know negotiation process. You get lots of bids and you you agree to one you know acquisition offer. You sign the LOI. And the moment at the signing meeting, you get up from the table, you walk over to the most senior person in the room for the acquirer. And you say, I will do this deal on one condition. And you stretch out your hand and the acquirer takes your hand and said, okay, what's the condition? And, the, and you say, no retrading. And, and what that does is it telegraphs to the acquirer that you're a sophisticated seller, that you're not going to fall victim to illegitimate retrading. Again, Legitimate retrading happens all the time if you've misrepresented yourself or or the you know the the company starts to struggle during due diligence. That's totally legitimate. What's illegitimate retrading is when they use that knowledge of the fact that you've sold your business to retrade. And so the no retrading handshake, I think, goes some way to just communicating, aha, okay, we've we've got a relatively sophisticated seller here. We should be on guard. And I, I've always I remembered the no retrading handshake. I'm going I'm to use that one if that's okay, John. I'm going to suggest that that's, that's something any of the, my clients should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, give Barry your credit. It's not my idea. It was, uh, no, yeah. no, I will. Yeah. Um, okay. Last thing before we finish up, because um, your, your most recent book, um, which effectively the art of selling your business will covers that area. Um, what are some of your tips or, or we've probably covered them. I'm sure we have covered a lot of them already, mm -hmm. but what are some of the things from that? You know, cause this, when, when did you um, release that book? It was January of this year. Okay. So we're talking, you know, from, from, from built to sell all the way through. What are some of the things you say in that book, you know, three to five tips, let's say that would help someone if they're getting ready to exit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to give you an analogy of like why I wrote the book, do you remember, uh, do you remember Sully, the guy who landed the airplane in the Hudson River? Yeah, yeah, I've seen yeah. the. Uh, didn't Tom Hanks or something play? In the yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I've seen. Okay, so Sully, you know, most decorated captain. I think it was U.S. Airlines or one of the ma major player. Like he trained young pilots. He'd done everything there is to do in an airplane at the age of sixty-five. Yet he'd never landed a plane on the Hudson River. And I think it's a perfect analogy for selling a company, the last mile, because most entrepreneurs know everything there is to know about writing a marketing plan, click funnels, hiring employees. They don't get a chance to sell their business. He, Sully had like no do-over, right? He had no chance to practice. And many entrepreneurs don't. That's why I wanted to write the book because I think there are some unforced errors that entrepreneurs make that are really easy to not make and can save you lots of money. I'll give you an example. So one of the ones is an entrepreneur. And I don't know if you've ever done this. So forgive me if I know you've been on the buy side <laughs> a lot, but a lot of times buyers will do, will, will try to get your number out of you. So they'll say, look, you know, the M&A guy leaves. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> the M&A guy leaves the room and, and they, they kind of, you know, the acquirer puts their hand around you figuratively or arm around you. It's just like, you know, like, have you ever thought about, you know, what, what, what your number is, or, you know, what do you think it's worth? Or what do you, you know, what's your, and the problem with answering that question is twofold. Cause a lot of people think, okay, I, I don't want to throw at some number cause I'm going to put a ceiling onto which I'm going to ever sell my company for. Right. So, and that's a legitimate, you know, concern. So they'll throw out some outlandish number, right? Like I want 12 times revenue, right? you know, like something ridiculous. And a lot of times acquirers will just, will just balk and they'll say, okay, well, little Johnny is nuts. He's crazy. Let's not bother He's not mm -hmm. reasonable. It happens all the time. It happens all the time that, you know, and we, we, we had a situation on, what is it now? On Tuesday this week, exactly that point. Yeah. And so they, they, you haven't even romanced them about your company. You haven't even told them about your vision. You haven't even been able to make the case that it's worth something other than an industry average multiple. And they leave because they're like, this guy's nuts. Or I think 
So there's no, I think, effectively good way to answer that question. Either you got to put a ceiling on your business. I'm reminded of Chris Jones. Chris, the guy I interviewed, built a great company called Pepper Jam, sold it to Michael Rubin. Michael Rubin, yeah. he, he goes into Michael Rubin's office and he's expecting to have this sort of like chat about things, not expecting an acquisition offer. And Rubin, instead of even exchanging pleasantries, he turns to Chris Jones and says, okay, what, like, what do you want for your company? And Chris was like, I'm not, I didn't, I don't know. And he said, no, like, what do you want for Pepper Jam? And Chris blurted out the number that he kind of had in mind. And of course, he, he didn't sell his business for any more than that number. And I asked him after the fact, I said, like, if you had a do-over, how would you answer that question? He's like, I wouldn't have given him my number. So I think, yeah. I think people can just say, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm reasonable. I'm happy to, I'm happy to, you know, happy to entertain any reasonable offer you think makes sense and move on. And because I think answering the question is almost always a disaster. It's, it's like that, um, that rule of negotiation, you know, you don't say, you don't say the first number, right? Right. it's the same principle, isn't it? I agree with you. Cause it, cause it has, it has both the positive and the negative connotation to it. If you say a number, that's the number, if it's in the ballpark. And if you say the big number, like happened to me on was it Tuesday, then we're, we're just not, I just said to my business partner, we're out. Yeah. Don't, I don't want to spend any time on it. Because right. we are, there's a gap here too big that we don't even want to play in. And that's the point. They don't want to spend any time on it. So you don't even have the opportunity to tell the story. Yeah. And that's or build a, rapport or all those yeah. things. That you, yeah. Yeah. The other, the other kind of tip I would share is the importance of positioning your company. And right now we're in a, a very acquisitive market. There's lots of private mm-hmm. equity companies rolling up businesses but they look for telltale signs that you're the kind of business they want to buy. And again, I say this, I'm preaching to the choir. You know this, but perhaps your listeners would find it interesting. The you know, recent Trout wrote the book, Position the Battle for Your Mind, like 50 years ago. And it still is the best book now on recent positioning. Jack Trout. That's still, right. I know, I know. That, that was my marketing playbook for back in the 90s. Oh, it's right. Great. It's brilliant. Yeah. But they talked about in that book, you know, consumers are bombarded by messages. Try being living today. But they were even then bombarded by messages. So consumers, they use effectively shortcuts in an effort to try to put your product in, in a bucket. Well, acquirers do exactly the same thing. They're inundated with potential acquisition offers and they use quick shortcuts in order to say, ah, this is a company that I'd want to know more about. And so what you want to do is make sure that you are positioning your company from you know, the, the, the keywords you rank for, what it says in your website, how you position your business to be the kind of business acquirers pay a premium for. I'll give you an example. I, I interviewed a guy named Jeff Feldberg for Built to Sell Radio. He built a company called Embanet. They were in the business of taking universities' content and building online courses. So they'd approach you know, Cambridge, Oxford, big schools, and they would say, hey, we can put your content online. And in the early days, they kind of positioned themselves as a web design shop, right? And web design shops are like a people business, service business, clunky, project-based. They get terrible valuations, right? So he got an early offer, I think, of three times profit for his company. And, and he's, you know, like, it's not really what I had in mind. I want to I do better. And one of the things they did was change the positioning of how they talked about Embedded. They went from ca- talking about, well, we're a little web design shop. They changed it and they said, you know what? We're actually kind of pioneers in the burgeoning e-learning category, and at the time, e-learning was on fire, right? LinkedIn was buying Linda. Microsoft was buying LinkedIn. I mean, it was like crazy. And they changed the messaging and positioning to talk about the fact that they were really an e-learning company. And they had this specialty of working with universities, putting their content online. Long story short, two years later, they got an offer of 13 and a half times EBITDA. Now, was it just positioning? No, there was obviously other elements to the business, but I think talking about, thinking clearly about how you talk about your business and making sure you look like the kind of company acquirers want to buy, I think is important sort of nuance to the sale process. I think it's extremely important. So that the exit I mentioned, the 14 times exit was an education business. And I can tell you the story in the beginning of the process, because we were selling from one PE firm to another, um, the valuation or the estimated valuation, the multiple was half what we sold it for. And I remember two weekends, it's a true story, two weekends, we all got together, the sort of leadership team. I was the CEO of one of the divisions. And we just spent literally four full days working on your point. Mm. And we ended up selling the business as a data business. It was about data. It was about how the data could be used. It was the value of the data and how the investment was in the technology behind, which could underpin and then use the insights from the data. 
And then all the 14 businesses that were very disparate made a lot of sense when you got to the core. And that's when the valuation doubled. I love that. I love that. And that's the art of selling your business. It's the narrative. You know, what, what I've got a little bit like a bugbear about like valuation consultants because they, they, they run around placing valuations on a company. And in many cases, it's sip, simply by the numbers. Okay, you're a manufacturing company and we've got a little box over here that says manufacturing companies trade for four times EBITDA. And therefore, here's the evaluation. And it totally undermines or, or, or basically negates what you just described was, was savvy sellers are thinking about the narrative, their company, they're going to tell with their company, what it, how it stitches together with an acquire, what the investment thesis is, which is another fancy word, basically to say, (laughs) what's the value proposition, right? But these are all, you know, nuances that can add, you know, many, many millions of dollars to the value of your company, nothing to do with your profit and loss statement. It's all about the narrative you you tell. And that's oh, yeah. why I think there's, there's, there's more art to this than people think about. No, I agree with you. And, why and that, that was one of the things, you know, I'm glad we've covered, we've covered a lot of different things today, but, but I think that's one of the points that I want to underline, triple underline and bold and put our telex or whatever we do, because, because <laughs> I think, you know, you're right. Telex, you, know? you started off calling me old man. Oh, I know. What's that? Exactly. <laughs> but this is the thing, right? That people have got to get a good across. You've got to understand, right? That, you know, there is, there's more to selling your business or getting, you know, getting a high valuation for your business that then leads to an exit um, than just, you know, as you said at the very beginning, having good revenue, predictability of revenue, good profit. I mean, that, there is a foundation piece there, right? Yep. Like almost like, you know, this is the rite of passage to even get in the game. Yeah. But the rest of it is what's going to get those, those differentiators to it. So listen, John, I mean, I want to finish things there. It's been a great conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, where can uh, my listeners uh, find you? And uh, is there anything that you'd like to point them towards? Anything like that? You go to builttosell.com slash scale. And we put together some assets for your listeners. So it's builttosell.com slash scale. I and mean, there's, uh, there's a video series there. There's a subscription model checklist. So lots of different assets there. So yeah, builttosell.com slash scale. Great. Excellent. And uh, I'm going to say, uh, grab your books. You've got three books, haven't you? We've only That's talked right. about two of them. <laughs> the automatic, well, we did, we did. We didn't name it, but we did. The automatic customers about creating recurring revenue models. We talked about We talked about my favorite ones anyway. We talked about the ones. I, not to say they're not all fantastic, John, but you know. No, hey, that's, that's my cool. show. You know, you're the guest. You know, I get to play around a bit. It's all good. Well, listen, John, um, awesome to have you on Scale Up Your my Business. Pleasure. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time. Thanks, Nick. It was great to be here. And there you have it, another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show become even better. And while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button to help you on your scale up journey. Now, perhaps you're thinking of growing and scaling your business. Perhaps now is the time. If that's you, then please check out suyb.global. That's where we have all of our programs, including the Growth Accelerator Partnership, the Maximize Value Partnership, all of our services, and of course, coaching and mentoring. Once again, be grateful, be brave, have faith, and show up. Until next time.